Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. you wake at midnight and hear a horse's feet don't go drawing back the blinds or looking in the street then that asks no questions isn't told a lie watch the wall my darling when the gentlemen go by five and twenty ponies trotting through the dark brandy for the parson backy for the clerk laces for a lady letters for a spy <laughs> and watch the wall my darling while the gentlemen go by if you make King George's men dressed in blue and red, you be careful what you say and mindful what is said. If they call you pretty maid and chuck you neath the chin, don't you tell where no one is, nor yet where no one's been. That is a chilling reading. <laughs> that was that was magnificent. Uh, and and Dominic, we should uh, we should explain to the listeners that so that was about your sixth attempt. Um, and you kept corpsing every time you began. That is a smuggler's... No, that was absolutely masterful. And that is a smuggler's song by Rudyard Kipling, a very moving and powerful poem about smuggling, Tom, which is our... And there's nothing funny about smuggling, is there? So no. I don't know why you were laughing. People might think that I was laughing, but actually that's the distortion of the sound. It was moving, movingly and powerfully read as well. And yeah, wonderfully read. And at today's subject is... Smuggling, the golden age of smuggling, the prehistory of smuggling, today's smuggling, the whole works. And the reason for that is that a um, very good friend of mine, Alex Preston, brilliant novelist, has a new novel out this week called Winchelsea. And um, it's been greeted with rapturous reviews. And Dominic, do you want to know what a, a top critic, how a top critic had described it? Uh, was that you? Maybe. Uh, go on. But only if he can do it in, the, in that excellent Rudyard Kipling smuggling voice. Imagine Daphne du Maurier crossed with Quentin Tarantino, and you will have some idea of just what a thrilling, bloody, and heady ride this novel is. Is that Liam Neeson? <laughs> no, that was me, um, okay. pretending to be a smuggler. Uh, so that was, it, it's, it's a fantastic book. And Alex um, is joining us. And Alex, that brilliant poem by Roger Kipling, you said just before we started that you can actually see Kipling's house, Bateman, 
from where you're sitting? Uh, yeah, I mean, not quite, but it's uh, it's just over the brow of the hill. So, um, you know, Dominic's uh, rendition of it, you know, brought it even closer to home. <laughs> of course it did. I imagine the ghost of Kipling is just over the hill there, <laughs> cheering. <smiling>. Yeah, <laughs> cheering. And Alex, you, so, so this is, um, you're on the Kent-Sussex border. Um, I, I guess most people would think that the home of smuggling is Cornwall, not Kent and Sussex. And, and most people would be wrong. And, um, you know, I think it's quite interesting having a novelist on a history podcast, because actually one of the things that is most interesting about smugglers is how much is fabricated and how much comes to us filtered and distorted through through novels. And so we think of smugglers being in Cornwall. We think of them very much in the mode of of Kipling's uh, sort of lovable rogues. It's all absolute lies, and I hope that we can uh, we can give the, the the rest is history listeners a kind of unalloyed truth about oh, yeah. uh, about we, the history like, of smuggling. We like you like alloyed. We like alloy in this. Uh... <laughs> well, I can do I can do both. Um, so so that that's just before we get into the smuggling sort of hip, the genuine history. So our image of smuggling comes from what? I would say Moonfleet and Jamaica Inn. Is that is that right? Is that pretty much yeah. it? Yeah, Moon, Moonfleet, Jamaica Inn. I would think Poldark. Um, yeah. I think Do- Dr. Sin, which is largely forgotten. Russell Thorndike, which is, they were set on the Romney Marshes. So that was geographically much more uh, much more accurate, but um, but you know, Daphne du Maurier is is responsible uh, in the in the large part for this. Moonfleet is set in in Dorset um, on Chesil Beach, um, and well, uh, Alex, well, we've got we've got a, a comment from Kate Wayne and indeed many others being forced to read and analyse at length Moonfleet at GCSE ruined smuggling for me. So about? Moonfleet is brilliant. Well, what it's an wrong absolutely. With I think that that speaks very poorly to your correspondent's um, uh, literary taste because it's an absolute cast iron masterpiece. I okay. love Moonfleet. Okay, uh, and and left us. He's attacking dad. an audience, Tom. Shocking. <laughs> I know that's <laughs> punchy. Um, left of centrist dad. To what extent is our image of smugglers and smuggling entirely derived from fiction? I mean, you basically you've answered that. It is. I mean, it's hugely influenced, isn't it? It's very, very clearly influenced by by fiction. I also think there there is a kind of willful misunderstanding of the role of smuggler, and this is something we can get onto. But but you have to think about when smugglers were absolutely at their apogee. Uh, it's the very beginning of the industrial age. It's also the beginning of a kind of centralized government. And so what you've got is localised communities who are suddenly feeling their lives managed from above, from away, from London. Uh, You have got this sense that they are losing some of the traditions that are dear to them. And you have these lovable rogues. You have these um, kind of salts of the earth who are, uh, you know, sticking two fingers up to the man. And, and, you know, this is, it's a sense of of local people uh, championing People, the 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 kind of yes, they're outside of the law, but actually, the the law itself is is an ass in this case. Um, there's a lovely quote from um, Adam Smith in A Wealth of Nations. He says, "A smuggler is a person who, though no doubt highly blamable for violating the laws of his country, is frequently incapable of violating those of natural justice, and would have been in every respect an excellent citizen had not the laws of his country made that a crime which nature never meant to be so." Yes, yeah, so that's and very Robin Hood, isn't it? It is very, it is very Robin Hood, but it is also a sense. You know, and this again is why geographically, and I think thinking about your your listeners from, you know, we know that they're all corners of the globe. Maybe we should just paint a quick picture 
of the British coastline and, and where this is happening and where this is happening in opposition to where people believe it's happening. So the image of the smuggler is a, 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 of a Cornish, you know, a, a, a probably a Cornish fisherman who does this as a kind of uh, as a kind of pastime and, and then disperses his uh, his ill-gotten gains within the community, sort of helping the, 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 the lame and the halt. Um, and it wasn't in Cornwall. Cornwall was only ever a very, very minor part of this, certainly in terms of organised criminal gangs, which is what we're talking about in, in the 18th century. Um, the Hawkehurst Gang, the Mayfield Gang, the Sea Salter Company, these were enormous operations with, you know, certainly thousands. So what, kind to- of like mafia? Mafia, ma- I think, you know, well, I think organised criminal gangs, because I, I hope we'll come on to talk about the role that smuggling plays today, which is which is obviously very different, but which is is largely human traffic. People smuggling, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would say that they are they are very similar to the kind of organised criminal gangs, the networks of organised criminal gangs that arrange people smuggling um, today. So they were very sophisticated. They were incredibly wealthy. Um, the head of the Sea Salter Company died in sort of 1815 or so and he left in his will the equivalent of 50 million pounds so these were people who were really very very wealthy um i live just outside of hawkehurst um and the largest house i think ever built in the area uh was was seacox heath which was built by arthur gray the head of the hawkehurst gang it was so huge that nobody after him after the fall of the hawkehurst gang could afford to to keep it up and it was burnt down in an insurance fraud several years uh, after his death um so so listen let's let's focus in on the southeast coast of england so where i live France is visible on a clear day. At the narrowest point at Dover, it's it's less than it's 20 miles, 20 miles from, from coast to coast. Um, you know, there is a real sense that this is a, uh, a landscape that is, uh, has only just been separated from the continent. Um, one of the things I want to talk about is the sink ports, very regrettably pronounced in the audiobook of my novel, the Chinkway ports. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> broke, they, broke well, they obviously, heart. they haven't played Kingmaker. <laughs> no, I, it broke my heart when I um, when I heard it. But um, the sink ports is really important because it is a, a a kind of cooperative of seafaring cities, seafaring towns on the south coast. It's medieval, isn't um, it? It's it's yeah. I mean, it's very so. Edward the Confessor. It started. I wanted to I wanted to just quickly read you. Um, I I I got the um, the initial draft of the uh, of the legislation surrounding the 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 sink ports. They were allowed exemption from tax and tollage, right of sock and sack, toll and teen, blodwit and fledwit, pillory and tumbril, in fangenta hayoff and out fangenta hayoff, mundabri, waifs and strays, flotsam <laughs> yeah. and jetsam and lagum. So, you sure I mean, that's not... Were- that's 1066 and all that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you could imagine Nigel Farage really getting a head up about pillory and tumbril. Um, but so... Five, five towns, Hastings, New Romney, Hythe, Dover, Sandwich, two ancient cities, Rye and Winchelsea. And they really were able to manage themselves. They had a system called the Brotherhood and Guestling. These were uh, local um, sort of worthies who, who managed the, uh, the importation, exportation of goods. 
they yes they paid some taxes to to the king but it was it was limited for several hundred years um you know this was a, an area that was almost an, an independent state within within britain and i think if you take that mindset i think that absolutely flows through to the early days of smuggling so it's kind of strange comings and goings it, it and is the marshes. <laughs> well, that kind of gone back into your Cornish voice. <laughs> I mean, there are similarities between the Cornish and the uh, and the Sussex accent, but yeah, Dominic. Um, but then the other thing to really that I think to establish straight away is that smuggling was initially an export business. So um, David Hume said that Britain had only one. Uh, uh, had only one industry of any value, and that was its wool trade. And so British wool was renowned throughout the world. Uh, if you were in Italy, the one thing you wanted was a, you know, a, a gown made of, of, of British wool. It feel, feels like it would be hot to me. but yeah, um, scratchy. Um, but but British wool, it was something about the length of the fibres that it was it, it, that it was able to be woven in a way that continental wool wasn't. So the first wool tax was put in place by Edward Longshanks, Edward the First, in twelve seventy five. Another friend of the show. Another not friend in, of the show. Not, in Scot- not with Scottish listeners. No. no. Well, ah, okay. So that's something I want to get. Absolutely, something I want to get at. The other thing, really, to establish is that. The reason for smuggling, if you want one reason for it, it is the profligacy and warfaring nature of the English monarchy. So basically, they saw goods and uh, and particularly the export and import of goods as a way of propping up their fragile finances. And so uh, Longshanks wore firstly in Wales, then in, uh, I guess, Scotland, and then with France, of course, over, over Gascony, I think. Uh, decided to start charging twelve seventy five three pounds a bag uh, of wool twelve ninety eight six pounds a bag in thirteen hundred they were they were exporting thirty thousand sacks of of wool a year and naturally particularly given how close the best wool producing areas of 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 England were uh, to the continent this had just encouraged people to start smuggling it. So if you look at Romney Marsh, Romney Marsh lamb is, and Romney Marsh wool still um, kind of, you know, again, brilliant, uh, uh, the, the, the best of the, of the stuff. And it started, it was called owling. So owling. A- owling. As in an owl. And there are, there are several theories behind. So the smugglers were called owlers. Um, and it was uh, the owling trade was the was the bane of the lives of uh, of, of is that because they're going out at night? Well, it's potentially. It's often thought that it's just that they couldn't really pronounce wool. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> oh, very Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, <laughs> wool. We come to friend of the show Edward the Third, thirteen fifty. He decided that actually what he didn't, he wanted to stop this thing of, you know, basically Italy and Flanders had a, had a near monopoly over high value weaving of wool. And he said, listen, we're producing all this wool. I want to create our own industry here. I want to. to so he encouraged the emigration or, or the immigration of a large number of, of skilled weavers from from particularly from Italy. And then he banned the export of wool entirely. And so that's all the the Flanders re- weavers who come to London, and they all get beaten up. That's exactly uh, yes, and and <laughs> yeah. So he was trying to he again he encouraged it. What he didn't do was then encourage people to welcome them when they yeah. came. Um, so that's ex- that's exactly right. What it of course led to was you had almost immediately three years output of unsold fleeces rotting on the docks. 
But you also, of course, had people continuing to smuggle. That it was there was almost no customs as we know it at this point. There was uh, it was very very poorly enforced. And so by the 1400s, you start to get the first rudiments of enforcement. Something like what we would would think of as a uh, as as a customs service. So sort of excise men. Ah, well, well, excise men is a terrible term. Um, uh, oh, and you're, no, no, but you're absolutely right. It's what people use. But of course, excise is something totally different. Customs is for the movement of goods. Excise yeah. is a tax at the point of production on certain high value goods. And it's actually introduced again, uh, thinking about why these taxes were introduced. It was to pay. It was in, introduced by the Puritan government to pay for the, the the cost of the Civil War. So that that wasn't until uh, the 1650s that excise was introduced. One one other real um, sort of important date here is 1475, the the real wide-scale adoption of fore and aft rigging on boats. So until that date, you really only had square-rigged boats, so they could only go really with the wind. You suddenly had these boats that could be much more nimble and much more able to react and change direction because they were able to... Glide up creeks. and, And glide up creeks. Although anyone who knows this part of the world will know that that is, again, something of a Cornish um, Sorry. Uh, 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 invention. <laughs> you know, this is a very, these are long shingle beaches. You've got Cambersands, um, very, uh, Cambersands, one of the one of the great kind of landing places for, um, for smuggled goods. You've got uh, Dungeness, again, a long beach, and then you've got cliffs. So, Often they would land at the foot of cliffs at low tide and then derrick the goods up to the top of the cliffs. But we can we can we can get I've on. Got to a question that. before you continue? Yeah, sure. I know everything we say is wrong. I don't care. I'll ask my question anyway. So when we think about the smuggling, the corn, the, the classic Cornish smuggler, right? The from fiction, they are obviously British and they're bringing stuff in. What you're talking about in the medieval period is English people taking stuff out. So my question is. Is that all it is? Or are there also French and Flemish people in boats who want to avoid import taxes their end who are coming to across the channel and then going back with the stuff? Or is it just us doing it all? Uh, much lower numbers. So it really is a, a very British thing. And that's partly because, uh, firstly, it was a relatively, uh, you know, the, the geography of Britain, the fact that we're an island nation, it makes this sort of tax very attractive. Also, if you think about, you know, certainly uh, Flanders, you know, the uh, Holland as it, as it became, they were much more looking south and south east in terms of where their products were coming from. We always forget this, but Britain was so unimportant yeah, at this time. It was economically powerless, meaningless, you know, really didn't become important. And and, and again, you know, if we think about why the 18th century is so important, it's because, of course, we become a major player in in world affairs, a slightly ridiculous player in in, in many cases, but a a major player. And the value of goods is... What's your opinion? Well, we can can go on to the war of Jenkins' ear. But, um, but, you know, this is... This is a situation which is really about uh, a, a very, very poor, uh, very rural, you know, even right up. So at the start of the 18th century, you had 80% of the population uh, lived outside of towns and cities. You had about 20 to 25% of the population was claiming parish relief. So effectively living below what was a very low poverty line. So this was a very, very poor place. And people were desperate. 
Alex, a question from Sergeant Musgrave. Was, was supporting smuggling, I guess he's talking about the 18th century, but could push it all the way back. Was supporting smuggling a form of social protest in some areas of England? Now, where that I think is really interesting is when it comes to Jacobitism. It was a way of thumbing your nose to the authorities. So, you know, what, one of the short things I'm sure we'll get on to talk about was wrecking. Um, and, you know, so if I think about where I first came across smuggling, it was in Tim to the Lighthouse by Edward Ardizzoni. That is um, a brilliant book. Isn't it a brilliant book? All but those little of, Tim books are absolutely They're, they're wonderful. Superb. And I, I read them to my children. And I actually had, I had proper tears in my eyes uh, yeah. the first time I read Tim to the Lighthouse to my son. But they are wonderful. Tim's friend Ginger. Oh, ginger, ginger takes the potion that makes his hair grow. When I was invited into my uh, son's preschool to read a story, all the parents, I, I chose a little Tim book. It was one in which Tim and Ginger fought some rough boys uh, for Charlotte's honor, I think. Yes, it's a wonderful book. Um, it teaches valuable lessons. Like I your, think the your, teachers your, like thought your book it was on Alexander the Great. I think they thought it was an inappropriate choice of reading that matter because <laughs> it ended they? with a massive fight. Oh, you should have you should have read Alexander the Great. I should have done. I should have done. Well, anyway, sorry, we're off, we've gone off piece. No, but Tim to the Lighthouse. So they, they, there, it's a, a smuggling gang, but they're wreckers. So there is this. Uh, there is this image of, and it's always about moving lights or or hiding lighthouses. It's all totally false. There is a fantastic book called Cornish Wrecking by Catherine J. Pierce, which absolutely put me straight on this because I really didn't, I didn't, I, I sort of presumed that it must have happened in some places, but just not very much. But there really is almost zero what? record of this happening ever. And I, I was about to say, you open the book and it says, didn't happen. <laughs> No, what it? At least you're saying there's no wrecking in Cornwall. There is no wrecking in Cornwall. Uh, oh. I used to take my summer holidays at a place called Nags Head in uh, in North Carolina, in the states, and and it was said that it was called Nags Head because they would lead a horse with a with a light on it up and down the beach, tempting ships onto the rocks. And and again, apparently c- complete rubbish. Not true. Um, oh, not, this not, is. <laughs> not true at all. Um, so wrecking wrecking really didn't happen, but. What it was, uh, and, and I think this is really established in, in, in Catherine Pierce's book very well, the, peop- the, the people who owned the ships and also the people who insured the ships needed to make sure that there was a, a really kind of nasty, uh, thuggish air around the people who would, um, who would raid the, 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 the wrecked ships. So whilst ships weren't tempted onto the rocks, Every time a ship was shipwrecked, and that was very often given, you know, the, the storms, the relatively unsophisticated levels of, of marine technology, um, you know, particularly. And again, this was much more in Cornwall. When a ship landed, it was fair game. The entire population mm. came down from, from highest to lowest in the social scale. And they took, d- but took Alex, it But Alex, that still happens, doesn't it? There was a ship that got wrecked in Dorset, I think. About, yeah, and people about and six years, years ago, ago or something. Yeah. They all, it was full of washing machines or something like that. And they all <laughs> yes, I, do, I remember that. They all carted but no, off. it was very much a kind of uh, a, a, a sort of fairground atmosphere, um, except for the poor people who were on the boat, who were, who were sometimes murdered uh, if they tried to hang on to their to their goods. So um, everyone would ride down and, and, and raid these ships. But it was created. The idea of the wrecker was created as a, as an image to uh, to make this a kind of socially unacceptable thing. Now, I think the image of the smuggler is kind of the mirror is kind of the mirror of that, whereby it was a figure that was uh, dashing and counter establishment and was 
a representation like Robin Hood of somebody who was outside the law and yet, you know, as Adam Smith says, within the kind of spirit of the law, uh, or certainly was a a local figure that people could admire and who was making good at the expense of, you know, foreigners and, and London. And are you going to say that's not true? I mean, they were. It is absolutely not true. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, because because theme here, Tom. <laughs> well, because if you if you actually look at the heyday of smuggling in Sussex, these were these were monsters, and there was a reign of terror. The Hawkehurst Gang. Okay. Well, Alex, Alex, I've got a question for you. That I think we should we should take a break, but I'm going to leave this question hanging. From Simon Girdleston, what is the history of the infamous Hawkehurst Gang? So that's your first half volley that you can smack to the boundary how were they perceived at the time as romantic robin hood figures or as dangerous and murderous criminals and and they are probably the most famous smuggling gang so we'll take a break and when we come back let's talk about the hawkers gang this episode is brought to you by amazon prime you know amazon prime is not just a shipping subscription right it's got everything including streaming tv and movies on prime video and of course prime's fast free shipping Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. 
welcome back to The Rest is History. We're talking smuggling with Alex Preston. That voice is totally inappropriate, Alex, because as you said, there were no uh, Liam Neeson impersonators involved with smuggling whatsoever. But you were about to answer a question about the Hawkehurst gang, who I know have inspired your novel, Winchelsea, which we're just giving you another plug for. Bless you. Um, so now tell us about the Hawkehurst gang. Who are they? Are they Robin Hood figures or are they absolute utter villains? Uh, no, they're, they're, they're total monsters. And, you know, let's zero in on the 1740s in uh, in Kent and Sussex, which was the time when they were absolutely kind of at their apogee. They were they ran this as a kind of private fiefdom. They there was, you know, so we're talking about a time when there were overseas wars. So uh, Jenkins era and war of uh, Austrian uh, succession. So by this point, Britain is rich. Yeah, because we've leaped, we've leaped yeah, forward. Yeah, I feel like we've, I feel like we, can I, can I just quickly fill in a couple of gaps? Yeah, there, cause because we've leaped forward. It's... Tom's, Tom catapulted us forward about two yeah, centuries. Yeah, sorry about that. Sorry. Shame, shamefully. Because I, I want to, I want to lead us from this point where smuggling is an export business, where it is just literally the smuggling of wool. Um, and you know, by 1600, there were 120,000 sacks of wool. Um, being uh, being smuggled annually. The customs service was by that stage up and running. So you had customs houses along the coast in kind of principal ports. Um, you had, each of them had a controller of customs and a collector of customs. A and comptroller. A, t- a comptroller and a tide waiter, which I like very much, who would like board the ships and, and, and bring them in. Tide waiter is like one of those weird gradations they have in American restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, you you had so by fifteen sixty six, owling is punishable by having your left hand chopped up and pinned in a uh, chopped off and uh, and pinned up in a public place. Uh, chopped um, up, I think chopped cho- up. Was I, better. It, <laughs> well, it would be hard to pin it up having chopped it up. Um, so sixteen fifty, we talked about excise being introduced initially on chocolate, coffee, tea, uh, beer, cider, spirits, and then on salt, leather, and soap. So you know, luxury goods uh, began to be began to be taxed. And you know, as soon as this this excise tax was introduced, the smuggling of goods into the country began. So that's the really crucial moment where suddenly the boats still go out carrying wool, but they come back laden with brandy with gin, Geneva. I was going to, you know, had we been doing this in person, I would have uh, insisted that you both had a kopstut, uh, which is a, a Geneva followed by a, 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 a jug of ale. And, uh, and, and of course, uh, lace, lace was something that was, uh, you know, un- and unfortunately tea, uh, it, it's slightly unsexy, I think, but tea was absolutely the, the most smuggled um, uh, and, thing. And, and so this is driven by excise, not by not by customs, right? It's this driven by, by both. It's driven okay. by both. So there is a customs toll and an excise toll. So it's paying off the national debt. Basically. It's paying off the national debt. It's, pay- it's paying for the wars. So it's paying for these very, very costly international wars. It's but paying also, for the... We've got a bigger state, right? We've got a... Yeah, the state exactly. Increasing, but, so. but, but Alex, is it... I mean, is it like kind of income tax that it gets introduced to pay... So Cromwell or whoever, you know, the yeah, protector, yeah, yeah. introduce it. And and then every successive government thinks, well, this is a great way to make money, and we're not going to. So there was a lot of there was a lot of pressure uh, when the restoration came for for that for Charles II to outlaw the excise, and he instead established the Board of Customs. So he he said, no, I like this. Uh, it's bringing in a huge amount of money. Let's enforce it uh, much more, much more sort of powerfully and. Uh, uh, and, and and effectively than we have now. 
when we say powerfully and effectively, 1690, there were eight riding officers in the whole of Kent. It was incredibly badly paid, um, £42 a year. And he also, the riding officer also had to buy and pay it for, uh, pay for the upkeep of his own horse. And presumably dangerous. Uh, unbelievably dangerous. So one of the, one of the things that was really uh, problematic for them is that they, they were from the communities that they then policed. And so the, the pressure on them either to peach on, so peach is, is, is to tell tales on, to peach on people who were their friends, who were their family. Everyone smuggled in these Sussex and Kent communities. Um, and so usually they would just take bribes. So they were all fantastically corrupt. There was a land guard of 300 men um, for the whole of the coast, a water guard of, of 21 vessels. We began to see the imposition of, uh, of, of or, or the, the, the enactment of, uh, of laws that tried to limit the ability of people to smuggle. Now, it was still a relatively small scale. When I say small scale, it was not an organised process at this point. It was done by these very poor fishing communities. Um, it was just the way that they made a bit of extra dosh. So they might go on a fishing run. You go out fishing and then oh, just pop in and get some lace or tea. Uh, and then... Absolutely. Yeah. Or, or usually it was it was seasonally and it was done with the shearing of the sheep. So you would take the wool over to France and you would come back with tea yeah. or, or, Tom, or Tom said. Tom said, Tom said pop in. And I think... That that raises an interesting question. Where are they going to get this stuff? Because that Tom's suggestion, which I endorse, implies that there's somebody the other end. Who, there's basically a supply as well as a demand, right? So, who, what's the other end of that of that relationship? Of that, yeah, that, what, that's really in, that's really interesting. So, um, it was it was largely France um, and uh, and Flanders. So it was basically the the main trading ports certainly for, for Sussex, um, were uh, Calais, Boulogne, Dieppe and Dunkirk. Um, you had Ostend uh, increasingly as the 18th century um, played out. Um, and then, of course, you had Roscoff and Le Havre and Saint-Malo. And that was the Cornish side of things. But again, we can say that that was... And then, and then are they criminal gangs, Alex, or are they, or are they just merchants? No, they're just merchants. So this is just, you know, they would sell a portion of their goods... On the quayside to smugglers, they would sell the rest of their goods to be legally imported. Presumably, at this time, the city of London is becoming larger and larger and wealthier and wealthier. Yeah. And, and what you have in Kent and Sussex is proximity to London yeah. in a way that you don't say in Cornwall. So even if you have kind of poor fishermen who are doing this, surely also you must be having kind of organised gangs or even, um, I don't know, kind of merchant adventurers. It was initially absolutely the latter and then you know the 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 sort of the spark behind uh, initially actually the mayfield gang who were the first real organized criminal smuggling gang was this idea that they were doing it from kind of origination to end point so they would take they would carry out the run over the channel um the most dangerous point of uh, of any run was was land was landfall so when they uh when they landed the goods because of course that you're relatively static and you're visi you're visible um so that was the most dangerous part and then they would channel them you know uh, remember that the, the landscape has changed totally since this time it heavily heavily wooded um, all of this area, the Weald was a wild and 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 totally uh, lawless place. Uh, you know, you started to get 
uh, toll roads built in uh, in in the 1700s. But it was still, uh, you know, people would would take these trains of uh, of ponies up, and that the reason the Mayfield Gang and the Hawkehurst Gang, the reason they were named after these inland places rather than being the Rye or the Winchelsea Gang, was because of this sense of being a staging post and a a, a management point on the road from the coast to London. Right. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Because um, because there's a story, isn't there? There was so much gin was smuggled in that people in Winchelsea would use it to wash to clean their windows. windows. Yeah, yep, abs- absolutely. And um, and and also that so much cash went out whenever there was a uh, a, a, sm- a sm- whenever a, a raid was landed, because of course local people would be buying this stuff as well. That whole towns would be de- would be emptied of uh, of money. That they would be you know unable to pay their bills for for weeks afterwards because they would have all bought so much brandy and tea. So have we got have we got to the Hawkehurst gang? Well I was just about to say before we get to the Hawkehurst gang. So what has really driven this to its apogee as it were? Are you've got a uh, to I'm trying to get my head around it. There's you've got, you've got a bigger state which is trying to impose the tax burden is is greater and greater. Presumably demand for luxury goods is greater. Uh for lace, for wine, for spirits because people have more money because you've got an increasingly urban population so this stuff is finding its way to London. Um and presumably the supply is greater as well. More of the stuff's being produced on the continent, I guess. More lace. Well, more... And, and of course, tobacco, um, yeah. which didn't even exist before, uh, or exist, didn't, well, certainly wasn't in, in the country before. And that suddenly... Um, well, you, same you with have... tea, isn't it? Tobacco and yeah, tea. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. These are new things. The, um, you know, tea, tax on tea was, was 129%. Um, at one point, you know, this was that the taxes were extraordinary. And yet there was this incredible, you know, it was so voguish. It was so part of the way of life that that absolutely it was, you know, it it was all the things you, you said. I think maybe maybe the one thing to add to that in terms of why it suddenly becomes this golden age of, of smuggling is the sense of a state that believes that the way to stamp out smuggling is by ratcheting up the pressure on the smugglers. And actually what that does is it organises them and it makes them increasingly brutal. So when you say golden, I mean, you use the expression yourself, a golden age of smuggling. When we're talking about a golden age of smuggling, rather like we do golden age of pirates, are we doing, I mean, is this the equivalent of people in the 25th century if they say, ah, the golden age of people trafficking? I mean... Are we basically doing that? It's like the craze, isn't it? It's. Isn't uh, do you know it? what? I, mean, I, I think it is absolutely like uh, like the craze. I think it is that same. I mean, I find the whole. Thing we should just... explain for for, for non British listeners our nineteen sixties London gangsters or Peaky Blinders. Yeah, I find the whole ve- veneration of the craze a really creepy um, thing um, because these were monsters, and 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 the Hawkers gang absolutely were monsters. Um, they would. So let me give you a let me give you an example. So actually, the thing that really got me interested in this story, the thing that started me writing Winchelsea, was um, we moved down to this part of the world five or six years ago, and uh, there's a there's a road I take on my way to the to the beach, um, and it's called Dumb Woman's Lane, um, and I, you know, as is the way of these things, I I wanted to know why it was called that. And it was a lady who lived on the lane in the uh, in the 1740s, peached on the on the Hawkehurst gang. So told the excise men that there was going to be uh, a run that night. And they responded by by making sure she never peached again by by cutting out her tongue. Um, so these were and, and, you know, they were murderous. They were brutal. They they ran a proper protection racket as well. So if you think about, you know, 
where would they get their horses from? Well, of course, they'd get them from local farmers. And any farmers who would not give their horses for these runs would suddenly find that their crops had burnt, would suddenly find that their, you know, in some cases, their 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 children were, were disappeared. I mean, this was absolutely horrifying. And yes, we can dress it up as um, as, as as sort of uh, you know uh, lovable roguery, but 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 really in this case it wasn't. It was vile and it was brutal and it was murderous. And you know coming to the to the Hawkehurst gang, the kind of the list of things that they that they did to local revenue men. I mean, the very least you could hope for was being put on a boat for France and uh, and and disappeared. And you know if you showed your face again, then you would be killed. But many of them were murdered and murdered with the recognition and acceptance of what was a largely terrified local population. I was, Tom, I, I wanted just to come back what, to one thing you said, which was about this idea of them being kind of countercultural figures. Um, and, and I started talking about Jacobitism. And I think that's really an, an important part of this story. Because, of course, you have the First Jacobite Rebellion in, in 1715, the, the second in 1745. Uh, and there's a, it's a brilliant paper by uh, uh, Paul Mono, Mono, M-O-N-O-D, uh, called Dangerous Merchandise, who, who really says that the, the smugglers wouldn't have reached the, the stage they got to without the support of Jacobites. And, you know, there were these large landowning Jacobite families who, uh, who would support them financially, who would give them places to hide, who would give them places to store goods. Right. The, Ca- the Carroll family were a very, very powerful family down in, in Sussex. And um, whenever the Hawkehurst gang needed to get rid of a body, it would, uh, it would be found, it would be drowned in one of the, or dumped in one of the Carroll's lakes. So when I said, it's, you know, it sounds paramilitary. Ac- no, that's actually, absolutely what it was. To a degree, it is a kind of insurgency as well as a criminal conspiracy. Yeah. And when you think about, so, uh, you know, when you think about the sophistication, well, I guess at once the sophistication and the, uh, just the sheer violence of their operations, the, the sort of famous um, story, uh, well, you know, there are all these sorts of stories, but but the really famous story is the, is the Poole Custom House. September 4, 1747, a big shipment from the Hawkehurst gang that was being run into, into Christchurch Harbour um, in the West Country. So the Hawkehurst gang ran all the way along the coast. It was, it was absolutely, you know, this was not just Kent and Sussex. When they were at their, uh, their max, they were, they were running the whole of the South Coast smuggling trade. It was taken by customs and all of the goods, tea and brandy, were stored in the customs house and the Hawkehurst gang just decided to go and take it back. And so they marched over there and there was a naval man of war in the uh, in the channel with its guns trained on the customs house. But unfortunately, the tide went out and the ship had to retreat <laughs> oh, and it couldn't, it couldn't reach. Um, they killed and captured, tied up the, the uh, revenue officers who were in the house took the tea, left the spirits, I guess, well, probably drank most of the spirits, actually, because they were all roaring drunk and marched back. Um, marching through the New Forest, one of the gang, um, they were marching through Fordingbridge, which I don't, lovely place. Um, uh, one of the gang called Diamond, and they've all got brilliant names, Nasty Face and Diamond. And Nasty Face? Smoke, yeah, Smoker and Poison. Um, um, Yorkshire George. Um, Terrifying. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, terrifying. <laughs> anyway, Diamond recognised one of his mates in the crowd who were cheering them past as they as they went. Um, you know, probably because they were, you know, again, in the sort of slightly criminal gang thing that they would have been uh, uh, punished had they not cheered them. Um, and uh, so he saw this friend called Daniel Charter or Daniel Chater in the crowd and threw him a bag of tea and said, all right, mate. Um, now, Diamond was later arrested and uh, Chater was seized as somebody who who was rumoured to know members of the gang and could identify Diamond as one of those who'd uh, who'd been on the pool uh, on the pool customs house raid. And uh, William Galley, an aged customs official, you know, uh, I very much get the image that this was his this was his last job before retirement. One last was, job. Yeah, he was about <laughs> to settle down with the wife and the garden, and it was all going to oh be God. peachy. Um, and so he set out to the New Forest to get this Daniel Chater and to bring him to, Chris, to Chichester Court to um, uh, to, to stand to, to, to bear witness against against Diamond. And of course, the Hawkehurst gang they marched and intercepted Galley and then went and rounded up uh, Chater as well. They went to the White Hart Inn at Rowlands Castle, and Galley. Uh, poor guy. I mean, they were tortured and tortured and tortured. And it's one of these slight kind of knights who say knee things that you just cannot believe that they are still alive. There's one point where they're galloping horses up and down the beach with uh, with Chater and Galley underneath the horses being both dragged along the ground and kicked in the head by the horses as they go. Goodness. Anyway, Galley buried alive, uh, Chater uh, thrown in thrown in a well. Uh, dead as well. I mean, so, this was uh, so Alex. I, I mean, it's not Captain I, Pugwash, is it? It's not. It is well, not Captain Pugwash, who, who, by the way, was also drawn by uh, by somebody from Rye. Was he? Ah, oh, well, yeah. everything does connect. I mean, so all this stuff is going on. Surely there must be some kind of kickback from local people. Well, or from the state. Yeah, from the state. So uh, absolutely. So 1736, the Act of Indemnity. Now, this was this was major. So 1736, Act of Indemnity, what this said was uh, that you basically um, got off scot-free if you told the authorities about a run that was going to happen. But that only works if you've got some kind of witness protection scheme. Well, that that, that is the problem, that you unfortunately don't have, you know, again... While this is is going on, there are there are foreign wars. There really isn't enough money being put into this. Um, uh, you've got seventeen thirty nine, the War of Jenkins here. Seventeen forty six, they up the ante again. The authorities. There is very clear evidence at this time that the government were recognizing that the only real answer here was to was to lower taxes. And, and Pelham lowered taxes in several times in in the seventeen forties, but then always had something else to to pay for Pelham, the prime minister at the time, yeah. um, always had something else to pay for. And so would have to um, would have to uh, raise taxes again. 1746, the Gazetting Act. So uh, the Gazetting Act was that the name of uh, suspected smugglers was listed in the London Gazette and you had 40 days to turn yourself in. And if you didn't, you would be a uh, bounty would put up, be put on your head. Five hundred pounds. Now, to give an idea of what that was, you know, a day labourer would earn about seven pence a day. So this was major cash. They also imposed the death penalty. So it was already, you know, being a smuggler was was punishable with death. You were you were penalised. So death penalty for wearing a wizard's mask. Which, oh. um, you know, which of us, which of us, which of us wouldn't be hit with that now? Wearing a wizard's mask. Is this uh, still on the statute book? Uh, I, <laughs> I hope so. Um, 
So I'm um, hovering within six miles of uh, of, of land. Um, hovering? <laughs> yes. Uh, so hovering, uh, that is... Really harsh on the wizards. <laughs> really harsh on the wizards. Yeah, imagine if you were wearing your mask and hovering. Um, so that is to say, if your ship was offshore, because, of course, they would wait for, for signalling to, to come in, and we can maybe talk about how a, how a run was actually arranged, because it was you know, a fairly intricate series of, uh, of, of signals. Um, and then um, a death penalty, even for being seen in the area of... Of smuggling gangs so they were really trying to to, to ratchet this Does up it work? actually yeah i think that is what finally works alongside uh a real public upswell of disgust and you know just having had enough because the climax of your book am i allowed to say this yeah definitely of course it's historically accurate that there, there is this kind of high noon type showdown in a village called goodhurst goudhurst yeah goudhurst sorry um so do, do you just Tell us about that because it's a very dramatic episode that seems barely credible it is, it's a, when you it, it does go through rural to, Sussex. <laughs> it's a great village, actually. We we looked at a house there that had a smuggler's tunnel over to the church that was really exciting. That I sort of wish we'd 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 bought it, but um, but no. <laughs> With so Battle of mask. <laughs> yes, exactly. Battle of Goudhurst, twenty first of April, seventeen forty seven. It's a it's a wonderful story because it was again the Hawkehurst gang reign of terror. Tom, you'll you'll like this. They they murdered someone during a cricket match on Horsemanden Green. What? Um, so yeah, actually marched no. out into the into the middle and murdered him in front of his teammates. I mean, oh Tom, I would not let that happen to you. <laughs> no, I hope not. Are you his captain? I'm not his captain. No, I'm I'm not really captain material. Okay, Tom's not captain, is he? No, no, he's not. He's even less captain material. No, what Charlie. Campbell, I was I was, a cam- I was I was a captain for years. Were you of that team, the authors' cricket team? No, I ran a team for for 20 years and then uh, various people in that team went off and founded another one. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of like Rome to the Constantinople that is the authors. Right. Yeah, that's not quite the analogy I was... Anyway, uh, they murdered... murdered, So they were... And, and, you know, rape and pillage, um, lock up your daughters, etc. It was really, really horrifying. So the people of Goudhurst decided they'd had had enough and, and it was under the aegis of this very mysterious figure called William Sturt. Uh, he was an ex-soldier, uh, retired after his soldiering to Goudhurst and founded what he called the Goudhurst Militia, of which my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, George Kent, was a, was a member. It was initially to protect their crops and their, uh, uh, and their livestock and their families from the Hawkehurst gang. But George Kingsmill, so the two leading figures of the, of the Hawkehurst gang, uh, three leading figures, the Kingsmill brothers, Thomas and George Kingsmill, and, uh, and Arthur Gray, who was this kind of foppish aesthete from Rye. Um, the Kingsmill brothers were, were real sort of, you know, they had hands like hams and, and faces like hams, and, and <laughs> they were basically hams. Um, and, what are um, they doing hanging around with this fop, then? If was he there well, for window you know, dressing? Uh, I think I think he handled the continental negotiations and they did the duffing up. Um, right. But um, anyway, so... Is Idris uh, Elba in The Wire? Yeah, you know, I mean, this is so The Wire. It is The Wire meets Poldark down here, honestly. Um, so <laughs> meets he, the vicar of Dibley. And that's, the, that's Dibley. the fun of it. Yeah, that is the fun of it. So he heard that this militia had been set up. Uh, they had yet to, ca- to, to meet the, the Hawkehurst gang face on. And he marched into the church on a Sunday and said, disband or I'll wring your livers out. He's got a Cornish accent too. He does have a Cornish accent too. Um, and so, so the militia got together and they said, well, we can either um, 
we can either stand up to these people or we can uh, we can continue to have our lives ruled by these ruffians. And William Sturt apparently gave a, a, a very moving speech and said, no, we're going to we're going to fight them. And so the gang, they sent their message back. They said, we will not disband. And the gang said, right, we're coming for you tomorrow. And so they got together. They sent all of the women, ch- children and elderly out of the town. They got fouling pieces, uh, pitchforks. Um, they heaped up, went down to Battle, which is just nearby, uh, which is was the centre of the um, uh, of, of ammunition, and and they bought one cannon. Um, and, got a cannon. Yeah, placed it on the church ramparts. There were twenty five of them, and only Sturt had ever seen uh, had ever seen action before in in. But he had drilled them incredibly well, and the church, if you see it, has got this very crenellated uh, top. I mean, it's almost made for it. They stacked up a kind of barricades of gravestones around them. 400 of the Hawkehurst gang arrived against 25 of these guys. God, this it is was dramatic. Stuff. It's They had been up drinking at Arthur Gray's. It was called Gray's Folly, Seacox Heath, this enormous house just outside of, of, of Hawkehurst. They'd been up drinking all night. They were rolling drunk. They had daubed their bodies with paint. Um, and they were, they were ride, many of them riding on horseback, incredibly well armed, armed to the teeth. And um, the battle started and it was suddenly seen that the, the, the Gauthaus militia just had this wonderful tactical advantage of A, being not totally drunk <laughs> um, and, and B, being on this eminence because the church is up um on a hill anyway and they were raised and they so they didn't lose a single uh, a, a single life from the from the militia they killed many of the gang and uh then just as the battle was kind of poised to go one way or another uh, the dragoons turned up at the back of the gang the gang scattered kingsmill and gray were captured and were executed and that was the end of the hawkehurst gang and and really it was the end of that kind of official smuggling. There were more gangs. There, it definitely kind of ebbed and flowed. But in terms of, as we're, you know, inverted commas, the golden age, that was it. So, Alex, you have, uh, your, your hero, heroine, is is a woman. Mm-hmm. How many women were involved in this? Because there were, there were a few, weren't there? <sighs> there were a few, but it's also not something, I mean, I think one can overstate it. I mean, Anne, Bonnie and Mary Reed were were much more privateers than than smugglers, but they did smuggle. Bessie Catchpole. Um, yeah, but I mean, again, there are these there these kind of notorious figures. They were often the landladies of inns, um, and so, for instance, um, during the Battle of Muddiford, uh, which was uh, well, we've got a question uh, about uh, that. Yeah, Stephen okay. Clark, friend of the show, has asked about the was it the last battle fought on English soil? He says, seventeen eighty four. I mean, I will I will defer as far as the the history goes, but it was certainly a battle. Um, and, uh, you know, the, um, the captain of the, of, of the revenue ship was, was killed. Um, it was, where was um, this? uh, Mudderford is, is just outside of Christchurch. What's that? Hampshire? Uh, yeah, sort of Hampshire Dorset, I think. So yeah, and it was, uh, it was brutal. I mean, I think, you know, again, w- what it shows you is that it, it absolutely hadn't abated, but, uh, I guess what had happened was that the absolute hold that these organized gangs had over this part of the world really fell away in the um in the 1750s 1781 uh 100 mounted soldiers and 900 infantrymen went to deal 
um, and seized goods from the government, from from the smugglers uh, valued at 10 million pounds. So, I mean, it's still uh, 10 million pounds in today's in today's money. And there's there's a guy, Tom Johnston from Lymington, who um, during the Napoleonic Wars used to smuggle gold from Britain to France. Yeah, so that's re- that's really, yeah, really interesting. So they're called Guinea runs. Um, and that was that was really and, you know, uh, all the way through the Napoleonic War. I mean, it's really uh, again, if I'm uh, I'm being sort of encouraged to write a follow up to Winchelsea. And I think there is something really fun about this idea of suddenly you had information with huge value on it. And the smugglers were 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 buyable. I mean, they felt no kind but of Napoleon tries to hire him to guide the invasion fleet. Yes, would conquer yep. England, and then if England had won, then he'd ha- he'd be well paid, and he patriotically refused. Oh well, that's interesting because very very often the smugglers did not refuse and were very yeah. happy to. And you know the running back and forth of of spies as, as well. Um, you know it's interesting because obviously there was this constant threat from France, and I, I mean the reason Winchelsea only has half a church is because you know the French just knocked the other half down, and uh, uh, and and you know there were kind of raids on this area. Part of Rye was was French territory for for hundreds of years. Um, it was owned by the Abbey of Fecon. Um So there is a real sense of of again these linkages with the continent. What about um? Oh, go on, Tom. Ask your question. No, no, no. You go. Down. I was about to say we had a couple of questions about so-called smuggling kings. So, for example, I know you're very down on Cornish smugglers, but there is a very famous smuggler called John Carter, the King of Prussia. Do you know about him, Alex? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. So um, John Carter, the King of Prussia, uh, Tom and my friend Jack Stein was very happy to hear that we would be talking about the King of Prussia. Um, It it was, and I'm sorry, Jack, it was relatively small scale um, compared to uh, to, to the southeastern smugglers, he was um, he was based in a in a bay that is now called the Bay of Prussia, or I think it's called the Bay of Prussia after him. He was called the King of Prussia because he liked to play act as the King of Prussia yeah, as a child. Didn't he look like people said he looked like Frederick the Great? Is that true? <laughs> Um, uh, I, I hadn't heard that, but um, I'd heard, I certainly heard that in, in childhood games, he would always be the king of Prussia. Um, Great games. And so, yeah, he was, he was again, he was running brandy, lot, tobacco increasingly, um, running it up to Bristol. You've got to remember, transport, uh, Tom, Tom was saying earlier, you know, all the, all the money was in London, really. And transporting stuff from Cornwall, any distance at all, yeah. was, was yeah. incredibly expensive and difficult. So it was only ever a, a localised thing. But he is a, a kind of lovely, and, and, you know, certainly de Maurier drew on the story of the King of and Prussia. He, he, in writing he and his him. family are all Methodists, aren't they? They're all very yes, keen right. Methodists. And his brother, they, they, they have some massive fight with um, the customs men in 1788, with the Navy, the Royal Navy. His brother escapes, goes to New York, and ends up becoming a slave. Extraordinary, oh, wow. yeah. He's. I didn't know that. He's. He's. He, well, I don't know whether he's technically a slave, but he basically ends up on a plantation or a farm, working alongside slaves, and then somehow manages to get back to. He gets back to France and is imprisoned in the rain. It's of very. Terror. It's very Poldark. It's very. Oh, Poldark. I mean, I, I yeah. quite want to write, write his story. I, yeah. I mean, the, the the whole dressing up thing is. So to go back to to Bessie Catchpole. Who uh, her husband was a was a smuggler. He dies, so she dresses up in his grey coat, smokes a pipe, wears a cutlass, and a Dutchman laughs at her, and so um, she punches him in the face, knocks out his teeth, and that's how you treat transphobes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought you could say that's how you treat Dutchmen. <laughs> no, I'd never say that. You know, I love the Dutch. Um. I'm sure most Dutch wouldn't laugh at a woman just because she wore a cutlass and smoked a pipe. <laughs> Um, but there's the, the, the kind of that, and that's going back to the Robin Hood thing that 
you as a as a famous smuggler, you obviously have to have a brand, whether you are looking like Frederick the Great or you know, wearing a cutlass if you're a woman or whatever. Yeah, but only it's... posthumously. I mean, these are these are I mean, you don't have to have a brand at the time. Well, and, and that presumably takes us back to the idea that you know, smugglers when they as the eighteenth century turns into the nineteenth century, so it starts to become grist for the mill of literary fiction and romance and myth and so on. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, again, thinking about when these these books were published, um, you know, there is a real nostalgia in there. You know, if you read Moonfleet, so published 1899, you know, it's kind of just on the cusp of modernism, end of the end of the century, a real sense of of looking back at, back at a time when, uh, you know, the local squire was this sort of all powerful figure. And and, and there were these kind of noble uh, uh, ruffians who, who were, were doing good things. It's a do you know what I, I, I want to. I'm sorry to have another go at your listen, but it really, the end of Moonfleet is one of the most extraordinary, I mean, again, spoiler alert, but they, they, they go to jail uh, and then it suddenly, you sort of cycle for decades and it's absolutely beautiful. I mean, it really is um, a, a sort of L.P. Hartley-esque nostalgia for, 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 a, for a golden age. It's, um, it's a beautiful, beautiful so, novel. So Alex, we're coming to the end now, but just a question about the present. Because one of the things that's changed, I guess, over the past decade, maybe two decades, is that we're starting to see smuggling happen again. Uh, and now it's it's people smuggling. Or drugs, I suppose, Tom. Or drugs, yes, or drugs. Uh, and and there's nothing really romantic about any of them. I mean, they ha- they have a kind of dark reputation. Uh, and do you think that that is starting to affect retrospectively how people see the 18th century now? Uh, I don't know that people make the linkage, if I'm honest with you, but I certainly fully subscribe to, to the, you know, I would love to think that people would get a, a better and truer portrait of the 18th century by understanding how things are, how things are now. Um, you can't live where we live um, in Sussex here and not be aware of the trade in people that goes on. Um, you know, uh, my friend John lives just on the uh, on on the River Rother, right at its mouth in in Rye, and he had somebody in his garden um, just coming out of the waters um, just the other day. I I see this firsthand because um, really since I moved down here, I recognised that there were people arriving, and I wanted to do something about it. And there's a wonderful charity called um, Kent Kindness. And we, so what we do is we teach uh, the unaccompanied minors who arrive, we teach them basic kind of, you know, okay. English, English, yes, so, oh, well, believe me, the Afghans have been uh, made, made very welcome um, because they've, uh, they've been turned out, turning out for the local cricket teams. They're, they're wonderful, wonderful cricketers. But, you know, teaching them how to open a bank account, how to, uh, how to ask for directions in town, uh, you know, basic English, all of this sort of stuff. So the thing that's so fascinating is, is seeing them every week, as I do, you get a real sense of where they're coming from, of the kind of ebbs and flows of trafficking, and of the experiences they've had, which are very different. So you've got, you've got kind of three routes that, that, that they take. Um, you know, at one point, it was very much coming up from Eritrea, South Sudan, Ethiopia, um, you know, that it was, it was, I would say, 90% of the of the kids that arrived here um, were from Africa. And that, of course, is is a boat from Libya. Libya, from what I hear from from the kids is is an absolute hellhole. Uh, the the gangs that operate there. And by the way, these gangs really like fascinating network of 
you know, there's a lot of Russian and Eastern European mafia uh, operators here. Um, you know, there will always be a local uh, player. So there will be somebody in Sudan who is the kind of first port of call incredibly networked, incredibly well organized, very, very sophisticated in terms of how it's all managed over to Sicily or to um, uh, or, or to Greece even, but but mainly to to Italy from uh, from Libya uh, and then making their way up through uh, through Europe to uh, to Calais. Um, the other routes, um, Turkey and Greece, um, often in in lorries. So that's done, you know, in in lorries, and then and then again to to to, to Calais, or through Belarus and and uh, I guess Bulgaria, Romania. Um, that's maybe slightly less at the moment. Um, I would say again, ninety percent is is from Kurdistan um, of the of the of the people that I'm seeing. So they will have come through that Turkey and Greece route um, mainly. And, you know, they are, they tend to be, you know, firstly, from relatively better educated, they they sometimes speak quite good English when they arrive here. Um, they have to pay up to £25,000 um, to to these smuggling gangs um, to get here. They come over in inflatable dinghies. Um, so literally, uh, I, I, you know, the sort of thing that my kids would have on the pond. Um, it's that sort of thing. And the reason they do that is because they're not detectable on radar. Um, so uh, uh, it is a it is a you know a absolutely monstrous thing. It is uh, it is you know I always think of that that golden rule thing of uh, uh, the Kantian imperative of you know treating people as an end in themselves rather than a means. And these are people who just see others as means. Um, the there are operators, of course, in the UK. One of the other things that I've done is is a project called Refugee Tales, um, which was set up by uh, the poet David Hurd. And what he did, um, and it's with the Gatwick Refugee Detainees charity as well, they pair you with a refugee and as a writer and get you to tell their story. So it's brilliant. They, Ali Smith has done it. Uh, our friend Carmela Shamsi has done it. Um, Abdul Razak Gurna has done it. And I was paired with a, with a boy... Um, from uh, I won't say which country because I didn't say which country in the story because he was really in, in major danger. His brother was killed uh, by the state. Um, and um, and his story of interacting with the with the smuggling gangs, he actually ended up it was a kind of charitable organization that got him to the UK because he was absolutely about to be killed. But then he was uh, approached by a gang in London who said, oh, by the way, it's so much better in France. You'll get, you know, you'll get £40,000 a year and everyone's going to look after you. You've got to go to France. He paid them a load of money, um, got to France, was sent back, was arrested. Um, just absolutely horrifying situation. So the, the, the question is that that if you think of Kent or Sussex or, you know, I mean, that's the, the definition of rural England, calm, peaceful. And that's why there's the 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 sense of shock in reading your book and realizing that these were scenes of unbelievable brutality, kind of paramilitary activity yeah. in the 18th century. Um, but now those same kind of pressures perhaps are, are starting to materialize along the beaches. And Well, we just had in, yeah, we just had in Hastings the other day, they were, um, the lifeboats were trying to go out and rescue a refugee boat and a group of locals uh, physically stopped them from going out. Uh, there is a there is a violence down here that is not um, 
that is not there on the postcards. But you go to particularly some of the kind of towns uh, as you go along the Kent coast. Um, and it's a, it, it's a dark, dark place. Have you read All the Devils Are Here? No. Oh, that's a novel you should, a novel, a, a book you should read. Brilliant um, uh, kind of memoir of, uh, of, of the Kent coast. One last question before we kind of wrap this up. I mean, you're talking about smuggling people. What about smuggling things? Um, do, I mean, drugs must get into Britain somehow. Um, and there must be other things that are smuggled in. Or, or has smuggling by sea of goods, as opposed to people, has that kind of died a death now? It has largely died a death. And that's because so things smuggling is is mainly done uh, in lorries now. So if you look at where particularly dry, I mean, I, 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 I'm trying to think about what other smuggling there might be. But really, you know, it is it does tend to be drugs. Drugs are lorries and, you know, Weapons, it's guns. Yeah, I guess weapons and guns, um, you know, not not my area of expertise, but, um, you know, it, of course, it clearly still happens. And, and again, it's one of those things where the, the kind of darker side of it, I mean, you know, the whole kind of tours of Pablo Escobar's home and all this. Sort of, I mean, I think that's just again, this, this is sickening, but doesn't sickening that answer, and brutal stuff. But doesn't that answer Tom's question in, in perhaps not a very cheery way because tom was asking you know does our awareness of people smuggling now change our view of the 18th century and isn't the answer to that actually it won't change our view of the 18th century because we still romanticize criminals now i mean maybe we don't romanticize people smugglers but the whole narcos pablo escobar the wire you know there are there are there are endless sort of tv programs and things where we peaky blinders where we 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 completely glamorize and romanticize. No, and and my no, and my novel does it too. You know, I uh, I'm I'm absolutely part of the problem here, and I recognize that. And but I guess, you know, I feel like on a history podcast, one wants to get at the truth, and I feel like it's important to recognize that there is a kind of uh, a public imagination, a kind of willful miscasting of this historical period. Yeah. Well. I, your novel in no way, I mean, you, you know, you can't read it and not feel that the, the smugglers were horrible. I mean, they're spectacularly horrible. Um, and it's a brilliant book, fabulous novel. Um, as I say, it's uh, Daphne du Maurier crossed with Quentin Tarantino. Except it's not Daphne du Maurier, is it? Because she wrote about Cornwall. And you have made it very clear, Cornwall, forget it. Yeah. So, Alex, we've lost so all much our Cornish for... listeners. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> thanks so much, guys. It's It's been a brilliant myth-busting exercise. Uh, and... If you love a good novel, Winchelsea, go and get it. Brilliant. So we will see you, all of you, next week for what delights have we got in store, Tom? Uh, we've got Valentine's Day. We do. We do have And Valentine's we've Day. got uh, American Crusades. America's Holy Wars. And beyond that, we are thinking about the top 10 disastrous parties, aren't we? We Which, are. Um, yes, we are. Not, not inspired <laughs> by anything in the news, of course. Uh, so thank you again to Alex, and we'll see you all next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you wake at midnight and hear a horse's feet. <laughs> I'll do that again and start. Again. No, don't think, because I got the, the listeners want to hear that. I'll do it again. <laughs> mute Tom. So if you're going to laugh, mute yourself, because otherwise I won't be able to do it. If you wake at midnight. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Alex. Tom, I'm not even going to look at you. <laughs> if you wake at midnight and hear a horse. <laughs>
We will get there, Alex, I promise. No, no, this, this is fine. Um, I should say, I have, a, I have an interview with BBC Scotland at 3.40. So. Okay, I'm going to... Okay, press is on. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thank you.